0: All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verses 5 through 8 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth. Uh, and I've added a word. So if you have a pen, it would be good for you to add this word to your bulletin. Uh, and if you don't, to add it to your mental framework. So I'll let you know the added word. The added word is relationally. Let me tell you where it falls. God's righteousness relationally determines the righteousness of the repentant remnant. And you may say, well, did you not prepare for this sermon, Mr. Baum?" Yes, I, I, I did. And this is one of the upsides, downsides of preaching it on Thursday to the camera is I get to think about it a bit more, right? And so y'all are getting a much better sermon than the poor folks who are having to watch online. Uh, and, so, and so it just, it kept dawning on me as I kept going through the text that, that, that it, it needed that word. That this is not a commodified exchange that God genuinely designs for his righteousness to shape us relationally, in relationship. And if we fail to see that, then we, we tend to reduce it to some sort of simple math. Relationships are not simple, are they? Right? Is it simple to love someone? Is it always the same? Do you wake up every day and go, man, I love you. I, it's just no matter what you do, I'm, my love is unchanging doesn't move based on your actions, your words, or any of that kind of stuff. Nothing you do could challenge my love for you. Well, I, I doubt we're that consistent, right? And so, so we recognize that relationships are dynamic, and they are, they are fraught with complexity because of who we are and our limitations. And so, as we have that in mind, let me read it again and then read the text before I get too far off the track. God's righteousness relationally determines the righteousness of the repentant remnant. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans 3 5 through 8. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds in his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we're stepping into this, Uh, We need to, again, remember from whence we have come, because, again, they would have read this letter all in one fell swoop. So we've got to keep Psalm 51 in view, which we talked about last week. It is still influencing. And remember, in this section, Paul is beginning to identify maybe some questions that they would have based on some things he had said to them. So he's anticipating that, that the Jewish Christians would take what he was saying and and twist it into some different forms and fashions that would benefit themselves. Now, is that endemic to just Jewish Christians? It is not, it's what we do. We are so quick to uh, reduce things to simple math. If this, then that, right? And so we, we have this predilection within us to try to say that God is bound by certain things, that he has no choice but to act in certain ways, uh, f- following up certain ideas, right? Whether they're philosophical or otherwise that we think we find in scripture. And that is to reduce God to a commodified exchange. Anything in which you can say, if this, then that happens, becomes a commodified exchange. How many of you, have the expectation that every time you do something in your marriage that your spouse will respond exactly the same way as has been determined? Parents, how many of you have had to say, did not I just tell you? Right? If this, then that is not always the same. You, yourself, how many of you uh, it is now almost August. How many of you are still just rocking your New Year's resolutions? Show of hands. If you make a resolution, then what? Yeah, some of you made it to March. Some of you made it to like January 2nd. Some of you are still wrestling with, you know, you're reading Atomic Habits. You're trying to get it together. I get it, Right? But we need to understand that if this, then that statements, when it comes to us as people, I'm not talking about in other realms of like chemistry and forestry and biology and other things. I'm talking about relationships which are different than those things, right? Because remember, we are not deterministic beings in the sense that we are above all of the determined. We are crowned with honor and glory. We bear God's image. He is not bound by the deterministic. It is relational. And so here's what, what I would ask and what Paul's trying to get them to. And this is what he's arcing to as he is leading actually ultimately to Romans chapter eight. What bothers you most about the grace and judgment of God? Are you bothered as you read scripture as to how insanely gracious he is to sinners? People that we feel like need to read a certain article on the internet or need to read a certain book that we have determined for them or that that just need to know how to behave better. If this, then that. Are you struck at all by how judgment begins in the house of the Lord? By how often Jesus' harshest words were for the people who should have known better, the Pharisees themselves? And how does that play out in your life? Are you as gracious to sinners as God is? Are you as hospitable to sinners as God is? Are you as exacting on your own religious heart as God is? Do you place yourself in the dock before the world has to? Do you measure yourself against the righteousness and character of God as displayed in the person and work of Christ? Do you view it as simple math equation, if this, then that, that seems to bind God's responses? Are you constantly trying to paint God into some sort of corner with a commodified exchange? Only you can kind of sift through and answer and wrestle with this, and you need to. We need to. Because God loves us. God loves us too much to let it be reduced to some sort of simple exchange. That is not love for everything to work mathematically. And so fortunately for us, God is love. So it is consistent with his character to engage with us in a loving fashion, which is far greater actually than than tongue or pen could ever tell. And which nothing can separate us from. Do remember Romans 8, that glorious pinnacle that he takes this church and us to eventually. We'll get there in 2023 or something, I don't know. And so it's important that as we start out, that we recognize that what Paul is doing is having a conversation with them to try to deconstruct the commodified exchange. Because he knows, he's essentially said to them, you have misused your Jewishness. You've misused the means of grace, the tools that the Lord gave you to serve and love other people. You reduced it to simple math. If we are circumcised, then we are better than the Gentiles. If we have been given the law, then we are better than the Gentiles. If we are the people of the covenant and the promised land, then we are better than the Gentiles, which is a suppression of the truth of God, is it not? And so think about how many times we treat sinners with if-then statements of our greaterness. Now, did I just say that you can't call sin, sin? Did, I just say, did anybody think I just said that? I did not. In fact, remember, as God's repentant remnant, we are to take sin more seriously than anybody in any given room. And we are to be the most creative people in terms of reconciliation of anybody in any given room. That's who we are to be because God is, right? Does God take sin seriously? Yes, he sent his son to die for that sin. And there was agony involved and it was real. And Christ cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was separated from him for a time, which to us, as you stand back and go, three days ain't that long. You ever heard of the theory of relativity? I encourage you, I don't encourage you, I can't encourage you. But if you wanted to do this experiment, Uh, A minute's worth of pain versus a minute's worth of pleasure, which is longer? I'll answer that if you like. (laughs) Nancy's busy right now. She's in worship. Call back later. All right, so it's very important that we understand what Paul's doing here. He's he's going on something, but he's also teaching us something very important. He's teaching us what our predilection is whenever we get decentered. Whenever we get decentered, the pendulum often swings hard the other way toward an equal and devastating untruth. And always what we're doing is trying to get out from under anything that that God would try to impose upon us. That is our natural predilection. You need to understand that about yourself. You need to be aware of it so that when it happens, you can mortify it. The other thing that Paul's teaching us that's very important is we ought to ask questions. We should take our doubts, our questions, our concerns, our simple math to the Lord himself. We should use every resource available to us because we genuinely care about God's righteousness. We care about being in right relationship with him. We should desperately want, despite our questions, and and trust that the Lord will answer them in time and use the people around us for that purpose, who have that expertise who can speak into some of that stuff. So, so yes, we're going to wrestle with stuff. That's not the problem. Yes, we're going to have questions and doubts. That is not the problem. The problem is if you treat it as a commodified exchange and you don't take it before the Lord. So he's teaching us something that we need as a repentant remnant. And so let's get into what he's saying here as we see yet again that it's God's righteous plumb line. Do remember, it's God's righteousness by which everything is measured. And if you're wondering, what is that? Well, Exodus 34, six and seven is a good place for you to go. That's the character of God, which is the plumb line. We also had the text from last week, right? From from Micah chapter seven, 18 through 20, that anything that describes God's character The fruit of the spirit, anything that describes God's character as displayed in Jesus is a helpful thing for us to use as plumb line, right? And just for the questions from last week, can the people that are around you accuse you of delighting in steadfast love? That word is a pretty interesting qualifier, is it not? What does it mean to be steadfast in love? Not easily moved, in it for the long haul. Fixed on the relationship. How often do we communicate to people, it's not you that matters, it's my rightness that matters more than you. And so he steps in and says, look, I'm anticipating you'll you'll wrestle with this. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say then? And he's anticipating this would be their response. That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. So what he's saying is, all right, look, if the ultimate goal, can we all agree that the ultimate goal is that God would be glorified? Is that the ultimate goal of creation? Okay, yes. And, and his righteousness would be displayed. Yes. All right, so therefore, by simple mathematics, whatever the means are, are, are inconsequential. It's the end that matters. Is that, is that true of God? Does he care, could he not care less about the means? I don't care as long as I'm glorified, as long as I'm declared righteous, as long as my name is, is, is ascribed uh, rightly, I don't care about y'all. Is that true? No. But see, this is what Paul was anticipating they were saying. That they were saying, look, if the ultimate goal is God's righteousness, then what does he care about how it happens? Why, does, why is he busting our chops when he got what he wanted? Because that is a commodified exchange. That is simple math. God doesn't long to just be made righteous, by the way. God is most glorified. God is declared most righteous in and through relationship, through redemption, through reconciliation, through us displaying his righteousness. He is not at fault if he is sovereign enough and omnipotent enough to use our evil for his good. Would you want a God that cannot use the evil of the world for some measure of good? Is that what you would want? Do you want a God who can do nothing with the various examples of historical horror that we have seen just in our own lifetimes? Do you you want a God who can do nothing with your marriage that is crumbling, your child who has gone prodigal, do you want a God whose hands are tied by our evil? Do you? Neither do I. Do you want a God who doesn't care about the means, who will use you in any way he chooses and cast you aside once he has gained what he wants? No, you don't want that God either. And so this is what Paul is pushing against. He's telling them, showing them that you have failed to understand God's genuine desire to be in relationship with you, which is far more dynamic and beautiful and complex than all your simple math. And if you notice, what is it that the Jews are really trying to get out from under in this line of questioning? They don't want to be judged. And really, they don't want to even be Disciplined, which is part of relationship, right? What good father, what good mother doesn't discipline their children? That is part of relationship. What good friend doesn't tell you when you are train wrecking your life with your sin? What good church member doesn't come and say, Pastor, are you doing okay? I, something seems off. What? what, what What would we be if we didn't genuinely care about the condition of one another in this way? Praise be to God that he shows us it's not simple math. And you've been equipped by virtue of repentance. You do understand that repentance is a relational thing, right? When is the last time that you you looked in the mirror and you said, Self, I'm sorry for all of the donuts I've eaten from January to now. It's beach season, and this is going to be terrible. Is that what you do? Do you do that? Is that? So, no, you don't. You may kind of be mad at yourself, but that's a whole different thing. You don't repent to yourself. Repentance is a relational thing. It only occurs in relationship. We make too little use of it. And we need to understand that all sin is an affront to God. This is what David teaches us in Psalm 51. He says, I have sinned against you and you only, O oh Lord, or primarily. And so it is important that we recognize that in order for us to benefit most from the relationship that we have with God, repentance must be a continual and critical component. Not that we, it's not worm theology. No, this is actually what lifts us to recognize we have been crowned with honor and glory. You wouldn't go to someone and repent if what they were going to do is strike you down harder and harder each time you came. But what does God do each time you come who are in union with Christ? He lifts you up evermore, evermore. Because, and that doesn't give you license to sin. It doesn't, because that will actually keep you from him. What it gives you license to do is worship and know that you need not fear him in that sense. We must take sin seriously. God is not to be mocked, and he will not be mocked. And yes, he will discipline you, but that is not the worst thing that can happen to you is you be told you're wrong. You're finite. I've been convicted of this. The Lord has been on me. Uh, I was a daily grind, as I am oft. And there was a group of guys sitting at the table next to me, and they were having a pretty intense theological discussion, okay? And they had beards, so you know it was legit, right? And so, and so, uh, (laughs) and so they were, man, they were talking very firmly about eternity past and eternity future and dispensationalism. And then they started talking about Presbyterians. And it wasn't accurate. And I I started to kind of twitch and flinch, I couldn't turn my music up loud enough to get it out of the system. But the Spirit actually, uh, for whatever you think about this, the Spirit pricked my heart and said, "Don't. it's not about the information. It's about what you sound like when you talk about similar things. And I was almost sick to my stomach because I realized how arrogantly I talk about events in history how arrogantly I am prone to give an opinion on a matter for which I have zero expertise. I've invested very little, right? But man, I'm firm. And it was helpful, it was a beautiful moment to help me to see that, that too often my greatest concern is being right. My greatest concern is that someone else recognize my intellect, or recognize uh, something about me instead of just allowing myself to be loved by the person sitting across me who could care less what I know about what happened in America in 1919. Which is insanely funny that I would be, firm on anything that happened in America in 1919 having not been there and recognizing all history kind of gets reductionistic and we keep trying to make sense of narrative of of different things and there's all kind of historical fallacies right and it's not to say that we can't know anything I'm not I'm not leaning toward relativism what I am saying is what we know firmly we don't declare the firmest which is who God is which is who Christ is And too often we're waxing on about things for all the wrong reasons. And so it's gonna be a process because immediately I prayed, I was like, all right, God, well then transform me, right? Make it easy, let's just jump to it. Let's get it. And it didn't happen. Does God not love me? No, he loves me too much to just jump to it. It's a process in which he's going to form me further into his character and I have the liberty to come boldly before him every single day in various moments to to call out for it to be cultivated, mortified and vivified and and forgiven when I get it wrong. Because guess what I'm gonna do? I'm not gonna start speaking in, in question marks and rainbows. Probably not. But... I'm learning to watch my language even a little bit more, even from overhearing that conversation. You know how crazy it would have been if I have jumped in and said, hey, as the resident Presbyterian in this here coffee shop, uh, I'm sure they would have enjoyed it uh, significantly, a-relationally, to tell them how wrong they were about my people. Um, and so, so what we see here is God is, is calling them to, to, to relationship. No, I don't, I don't want your unrighteousness. That's not what I want from you. And notice where it even leads them to. They take it even a step further. They don't just stop with, you can't judge us. They go on. And why not do evil that good may come? If you can use unrighteousness, then how about we give you all you can handle, God. How about we just eat, drink, and be crazy, merry, and do whatever we want so that you can be so amazingly glorified? Is that what the Lord wants from us? Now, Ezekiel 18 and 33 tells us very clearly that God doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in the unrighteousness of his people at all. He says to them, I would rather you turn and live. Remember what it says in 2 Peter, that his longing, his desire is that the family just keep getting bigger and bigger. And notice who's talking. Paul, you know his story. Well, if you don't, let me tell you. So Paul used to be called Saul, and he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he was persecuting the church in the first century. In fact, he held the coats of the men who stoned Stephen to death. If you've never seen someone beaten to death, I encourage you not to go look this up. For you to stand there passively holding coats, enjoying the show, is horrible. And so, here he is, engaging in what we could argue was unrighteousness par excellence, the highest of unrighteousness, not just your casual stealing fruit like Augustine from some vineyard or orchard or stubbing his toe and taking the the Lord's name in vain. No, he was killing the members of the church and persecuting him, binding them, men, women, and children, by the way. And so... What happens? Does the Lord say, well, you know, I'm really deriving so much righteousness from this Saul guy. I got to let him keep going. Like this is good for business. Is that what God does? No. Jesus himself, who had ascended, and I don't know what to do with all this, comes back himself personally and confronts Saul. You remember the stories on the road to Damascus He is getting ready to wreck shop on the church, and he is struck with the presence of Jesus himself. And he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You remember what Saul said? Uh, Bro, uh, who are you? (laughs) Because this is freaking me out. That's a modern translation, by the way. He says, no, Lord, who are you? And Jesus says, to him, I am the Christ. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And transforms Paul's life, if you remember, through an extended process. So here's Paul as, as he is speaking to them as the best example of why what they would be thinking is patently untrue. He does the same with the woman at the well. He does the same with the woman caught in adultery. He does the same with the woman who washes his feet at Simon the Pharisee's house. He does the same with Zacchaeus, that wicked tax collector. He does the same with Matthew, that wicked tax collector. He does the same with those fishermen, with all those doubters, right? Transforms them. He doesn't, he's, he's not interested in our unrighteousness or some sort of commodified exchange. He is interested in shaping us into his image because that is what is ultimately best for us. So what a gift that that, that we would have this. And notice how Paul goes on a little further. He says "Now, what's interesting is this is worldly thinking, because the world is actually using what you just said to charge us with being overly gracious, with forgiving too much, The world is actually charging us with letting things go and, in a sense, they're right because you lack repentance and transformation. Remember what Jesus said, the world will know who you are by the love that you have for one another. Is that not relational? So if we don't relate to each other, then what does the world have to work with but really bad ideas from their sinful minds? And so their condemnation is still just. And that should matter to us, that people are perishing. Remember the great words of Spurgeon. Yes, people are going to go to hell, but they ought to be jumping over our bodies because we lay down before them to keep them from there. It ought to be that they go with bite marks and nail marks from us who try to keep them from that. Now, again, you get tangled up in the, well, the theology of... No, it's, 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 a, it's an example. It's an illustration. It's not meant to be prescriptive. But it does describe something that ought to be true of our hearts. We should not be excited about those who are going to perish. And we should not be excited about how God will use our unrighteousness. No, we should be repentant. It should be that we would long to look like him according to him. Listen to what Charles Hodge says about this passage. Now, you got to be careful because some of y'all are going to get tangled up in the word piety because we, we've turned that into a bad word somewhere along the way. But in the words of Charles Hodge, it's, it's a good word. He's saying, it is a mark of genuine piety or humility to be disposed to always justify God and to condemn ourselves. Right? So that God would be true And every man a liar, so that when God is judged, he is found just, Psalm 51. On the other hand, a disposition to self-justification and the extenuation of our sins, also known in modern vernacular as sin-splaining. However secret, doesn't matter if you say it out loud, it can be in the heart is an indication of a want of the proper sense of our unworthiness and the divine excellence, which I would argue goes further and makes it impossible for us to know how deep the Father's love for us. So my question to you is, whose righteousness is more important to you, yours or God's? Now, if you've been listening, you realize that is a trick question. Why? Well, because if you're actually concerned with yours, you would be most concerned with God's. And if you're most concerned with God's, you are most concerned with yours. If you are only concerned with yours, then that is not good. If you are only concerned with God's, it leads you to what the Jews were thinking, a commodified exchange. You cannot be concerned with God's righteousness that you don't think of it relationally. That is critical. And so... What what are the ways in which God's righteousness is being relationally formed in you? How are you being shaped by who God is instead of what's going on in the world? Instead of what's going on in your house? Instead of primarily by what's going on at your job or at school? What's forming you? It will be a battle, correct? Correct? Scripture calls it that. You will suffer to grow in character and hope and other things. That is our benediction week in and week out. It is not going to be easy because of your sinfulness. It's not going to be easy because of their sinfulness. It's not going to be easy because of the fallenness of the world. But it will be possible because God is involved, because all things are possible in him who loves us and sent Jesus to die for us and called him forth from the grave so that we could walk in newness of life and called him to the right hand of the throne where he sits and intercedes for us and sent the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we would have everything we could need right where we are. And called the church to gather together to display his love. And sent the church into the world, not to become like the world, but into the world to declare this truth. So Romans 3, 5-8 teaches us that God's righteousness relationally determines the righteousness of the repentant remnant. And what a gift it is to us that we would get to have our faith nourished on a day in which we've been challenged by God's righteousness to be reminded of what Christ has done for us and the finished work of that and how his righteousness has been imputed to us. It is not something that you have to earn. It is something you are called to enjoy. That's the difference. That's the beauty of relationship. And praise be to God that when we don't enjoy it, He stirs within us conviction and calls us before the throne to receive not his judgment, but the mercy and the grace that we need in that time of trouble. And remember that Jesus was concerned with his disciples and how they were going to remember his work on their behalf and how in that meal he grabbed bread, which he knew they'd have often. He said, this this is my body given for you. And in that statement, what he was saying is, I will satisfy God's wrath on your behalf. And I will take all of the shame and all of the guilt, cast it as far as the east is from the west, never to be dredged up by God. And I would encourage you not to dredge it up either. And that should allow us to breathe. But that wasn't all he did. He took the cup and he. And he raised it and he said, this, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It is the new covenant. It is actually the fulfillment of all of of God's promises. Yes and amen and you are filled with it. Now go and live it out in the power of the resurrection. What a beautiful thing that from start to finish the Lord provides. And he provides because he loves us. And he provides because he wants to be in relationship with us. This should cause us to awe and wonder and be humble. Now, for those of you who don't believe in Jesus, this, is not a, this, is, this meal is not for you. This is not a declaration that you, you want to take part in. It's okay for now. But I would call you to consider why it is you would reject so wonderful, beautiful, and deep an offer from someone who loves you so de- dearly. And for those of you who uh, think that there are those you can declare are unforgiven, that you hold within your power the ability to say those people don't belong at this table and they don't belong in heaven, for whatever reason that may be, you can't take of this table either. The reason being is you are putting yourself in the position of God and you need not eat and render to yourself the judgment that you are applying outwardly to someone else. But for everybody else who knows they desperately need to have their faith nourished, who want every means of grace, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the taste, regardless of, of what it may be in its exterior, to know what the Spirit does to us on our interior. With this, spiritually, as we are taken before the very throne of God by the Holy Spirit himself, you need to eat. And as you receive, remember, one hand gets you the communion MRE, two hands gets you the bread and the MRE, right? And that's, that's kind of how that works. But when you receive, as you are going back, meditate on God's righteous relationship with you, his longing to see you made in the fullness of what he intended, that your humanity as Christ so fully displayed in his perfect being, that, that we would taste and see of that goodness. Meditate on that, and then when we get to take and eat together as family, do so with great joy, great acknowledgement of God's love for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you grant to us so much. You were so good to us. Yes, we overlook things. Yes, we minimize things. Yes, we try to reduce it to simple math. Yes, we are guilty of forgetting the relationship. Yes, we, we are obstinate. Yes, we are entitled. Yes, Lord, we need Jesus. Thank you that you have provided him for the fullness of our brokenness, our sinfulness, our rebellion, our evil. And more, Lord, thank you that he rose again to newness of life so that we too could walk in newness of life. Would you help us? We need it in our marriages. We need it as parents. We need it as co-workers. We need it as single folks. We need it as students. We need it as sons and daughters. We need it as church members. Help us, Lord, to be the repentant remnant shaped by your righteousness. That our biggest concern would be, are we displaying your character as described, in scripture. Form us as instruments in your redemptive hands for the life of the world. Use this table as part of that. In Christ's name, amen.